0: With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell.
1: Ah, uh, Heard Tell Show, it's Monday. March the 7th, I'm thrilled to see you again. I'm Andrew Donson. Welcome back to Hertel. A lot going on, a lot happened over the weekend. We're going to get to a lot of different stories today. Turning down the noise of the news cycle, getting the information we need. Also going to update two stories that we've been covering before. Uh, Back during the State of the Union, we talked about the burn pits, how that got buried Under the shenanigans of rogue Congress people and the president's speech and all that mess. They actually passed some legislation about it. Go back and we're going to touch into that. Also touch up on another story. Donald Trump's truth social media. Not going well. We predicted it wouldn't go well. It's going not well. Touch in on that story. At the end of the show, uh, we always try to end on an uplifting or a good note. How about a Ukrainian and Russian chef who have been friends for years using food to try to bring about awareness and peace and raise money for the victims of the conflict in London? That story from The Guardian at the end of the program. Uh, one of our favorites on our as our guest today, uh, Todd Kelly, a long-time, long-form journalist, uh, one of the Ordinary Dash Times original fellows. Uh, One of the original League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that predated ordinary times, Uh, somebody who's been a mentor, somebody whose opinion I greatly respect, uh, a great observer of humanity. We're going to get some big picture views on a lot of the stories we've been covering, such as uh, Ukraine. Uh, the war Russia has abused on them. We're going to talk a little bit of the State of the Union, We're going to talk about the state of politics and the state of culture with our friend uh, Todd Kelly, who we just love having on the program. We had him back on our New Year's special. It was a great episode. You're not going to want to miss him today. But first, let's start with this. Um, I took to Ordinary-Times.com and wrote something. And sometimes when I write, I'm more articulate, a little bit more thought out. I'm obviously better edited. Uh, because y'all know my grammar ain't the best sometimes, but in ordinary days times, uh, I wrote about how clarity comes through crisis. Uh, The piece is called With Crisis Comes Clarity, and I just want to read through it for you because it took a lot of stuff that I've been thinking over the last few days and weeks and compressed it and put it in a uh, concise manner, and I think that's the best way to cover some of this. So I want to just read you from this piece in ordinary-times.com. Uh, With crisis comes clarity. The comfort of being at ease has the downside of dulling the senses, slowing the reflexes, softening the mind. The absence of crisis or the crisis being far enough away to be impersonal and of no immediate threat is pleasing to the point of being in an addiction, of a high to be chased and need to be met in an altered reality that must be maintained at all costs. Of using technology not as a funnel of information from a big, big world, but as an umbrella to keep any unpleasantness from falling on your head like some unwelcomed existential rainstorm. The immense privilege of technology to manifest not only the full depth and breadth of human knowledge and the live streaming of world events in real time, but also to filter and provide an off switch when that wider world becomes too much. With crisis, though, comes clarity. The folks to whom pillow shams not matching the curtains brings forth a violent rage of social media postings and demand for restitutions from the universe for the wrong done upon them might, just might, have a story or image or video or an antidote they heard tell of folks who have lost everything, burned through their inane existence for just a brief moment. Lost everything from family and friends, both in separation and death, to their homes, their livelihoods, and then threatened with the loss of their country. Because an evil, powerful man they will never meet from far away deemed it to be so for reasons that they will never fully understand. Human beings who a week ago worried about dreams and goals and careers, sports, and the underappreciated daily minutia that fills up life from sunrise to sunset find their thoughts replaced solely with the overwhelming and most basic human decision-making process of fight or flight. The stark images of desperate people not only contrast with the peaceful lives of others far away, but gives light to the overblown angst of daily dramas, amplified by a lack of more pressing matters. But with crisis comes clarity. Words and phrases start to mean something very different or more precisely, begin to mean what they should have meant all along before they were bastardized by convenience and social media trends, terms like fight and struggle and protest. So easily applied to anything at all that requires the slightest bit of effort. Start to pale against the knowledge that far from buzzwords optimized for search engines, they are nomenclature for desperate acts by desperate folks desperate to live one breath more. The performative version of protest, the crisis of fighting as a virtue unmoored from whether there's a just cause or not. A struggle of choice as opposed to one thrust upon the innocent. Wilson's shame as the onanistic pursuits they are. Or they should wilt in shame if such charlatans were capable of the sensation that keeps most functional adults between the lines of good public behavior. But with crisis comes clarity. The duly elected leadership of a people struggling for survival, doggedly defying the dictator who rigs elections, murders dissidents, and oppresses his own people, press, and followers ought to bring into focus what is and is not proper leadership in a government. On the scales, such evidence demands a verdict. Against the politics that ask not who lead in a crisis, but who promises to give the right combination of constituencies the right amount of promises to obtain their financial and electoral support. We demand our elected leaders and institutions to be wholly reactionary to our whims of the moment, sensitive to the lightest braved word of our longings. And then we wonder and marvel at why those same supposed bulwarks against the bad of the world flinch at the mere hint of crisis. The seemingly regularly occurring habits of voting for the highest office, not on the merits of the candidate, but on which one would be the lesser of various and sundry bad choices. The unspoken and conceited point that picking between the lesser of the two bad choices always results in picking something lesser and then empowering that lesser with the trappings and power of office, which perpetuates and empowers the lesser thing until it becomes the norm. Thus, a free people meanders and justifies their own ever-lowering standards all the while wondering just what in the hell happened and whose fault it is. Probably why they don't allow mirrors in the voting booths. That level of reality might just be dangerous. But with crisis comes clarity. We realize the great evils that envelop the world from time to time are usually preventable, but rarely prevented. That today's crises were yesterday's shoulder shrugs, last year's scoffs, and the last decade's unthinkable's. That the lessons of life that go unlearned always, without exception, eventually educate, whether we like it or not. That reality isn't as easy to ignore as resetting the filters on our social media. That our umbrellas of privilege won't hold up under the steel reign of a madman's unwavering ambition to kill and conquer and control. That the impersonal problem of today, if left unattended, will become the very personal pain and struggle of tomorrow. With crisis comes clarity. What will this crisis show of us? That's me writing in Ordinary-Times.com. We'll have more Hertel right after this. Now let me see you- Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell, a story we covered before. We're going to touch back in on it, uh, Truth Social Media. That's the Donald Trump-backed social media platform that's supposed to replace Twitter and all manner of other things. In fact, it looks so much like Twitter. I'm surprised Twitter hadn't sued them yet, other than they may not be worth the trouble when we cover this story. Um, they The rollout's been a disaster. We covered it when it first came out. Uh, part of the problem with this is with all of these, quote-unquote, alternative media sites. Look, we're free speech advocates here. Uh, anybody that wants to start a company, fine, go for it. God bless. Go forth. If you're not doing damage to the world, I hope you succeed. The problem is these kind of sites, they're just getting the same amount of people to run back and forth between the sites. And they don't really ding the existing sites like Twitter and Facebook, because the truth is the people that go on Twitter and Facebook and other places and complain about how much they hate it have to be on there because their hate validates their stuff. That's where the fight is. And they go to these other places. They wind up in an echo chamber where there's nobody fighting back against them. They get bored and they move on. Well, enter Truth Social. Uh, This is from the uh, Daily Beast. In recent reads, sources have heard the former president, meaning Donald Trump, on the phone, swearing gratuitously and asking things like what the blank is going on with Truth Social. He's repeatedly groused about the negative press and the less than stellar optics of the rollout these sources say reading from the daily beast again and he's demanded to know why more people aren't using it why the app isn't swiftly dominating the competition during his presidency in the years prior to his political rise trump had a famous reputation for berating underlings for failures that were mostly of his own fault throughout all the years his short attention span was constant he tends to quickly lose interest in novel business ideas partnership and money-making gimmicks that oftentimes rapidly go nowhere if not worse but if the preliminary traffic numbers are any indication, the former president and current wannabe social media mogul has a point. The Daily Beast, that's who I'm reading from here, reviewed analysis of visits of True Social's performance by SimilarWeb, which tracks website traffic from public from private sources. The company figures for the MAGA social network, which only an estimate based on incomplete data, are nonetheless anemic. Trump's own social media platform is doing either worse or similar as the same other MAGA social sites like Gab. Another pro Trump competitive website that's been especially beloved by, well, Nazis and Gitter, and a platform confronted by one of Trump's former top political allies, Jason Miller. Similar web estimates show a sharp, sharp spike of around 2 million daily visits to the site when it first debuted, before traffic dipped to an average of approximately 300,000 visits each day, putting the site on par with Gitter. Meanwhile, the far right Gab has an average of 650,000 daily average visits in the same time period. As of Friday, um, this is last Friday. True Social was 72nd, most popular free app in Apple's app store, a far cry for Facebook and his formerly beloved Twitter, which is 22 and 5th, respectively, both of which have booted the ex-president after the January 6th riot. The relatively light traffic could explain in part by True Social's waiting list. They tried to sign up. They had got put on a waiting list instead of getting in the app. That backlog waiting list is in the hundreds of thousands. It's a total mess. A um, couple of real quick points here. One is we predicted all this. You can go back and listen to the hotel where we talked about this, that this is what happens. They get a big spike. They get on there. They get bored, and then they go away. The other problem is the we know the technical background of how they built this website was not going to hold up. There's a reason Twitter and Facebook have armies of engineers. It's really, really hard to run a social media network. Uh, they just don't have the backbone to it. It doesn't have the technical aspects. It's always going to have problems. It's never going to work right. Plus, it's not really built to be a social media network, and we covered this some with other things like Rick Scott's little uh, 11-point plan. Mostly, they want you to sign up so they can get your email address because they have, once again, have another email list, and email list is as good as money. In fact, they can sell an email list to various campaigns and data people. There's one other point I want to make about uh, the problem with true social here is Donald Trump, if he wants to run for president again, has to have the one element that made him special in that race. And no, it wasn't just Donald Trump. It was his Twitter account. His Twitter account made him president, but it's here's why. It wasn't just the content. It was because the entire media ecosystem became revolving around Trump's Twitter feed. Now, I do it, too, because I'm a writer. I'm lazy. What would happen is, and it became a joke on social media, on Twitter, of when the president up, oh, tw- the president's awake, they would literally say this. You can go back and look. The president gets up. He tweets a couple things. Now you can react to those couple things and your day's set because now you've written your piece or two for the day and the news networks. Now they can take his tweet and that's the opening segment of your newscast. And then you have a guest on to talk about the opening segment about what Trump said. And then you have a panel discussion about what the guests said about what Trump said over and over. There's your first 30 minutes to every network news program. It was like this every day for years. It was easy, it made life easy on everybody. There's also lazy journalism. It was bad form and it made for horrible television, but ratings were never better. He can't duplicate that unless he's on Twitter and he's not. So if he's going to run for president again, he's going to have to figure out some way to get his message out without a media that was built around pumping it out. Now, they thought it was because they were opposing him, but it was still getting his message out. Whatever Donald Trump does in 2024, it's going to be very, very different. Because the media cycle is not going to revolve around him and his Twitter account. And it's very apparent now that true social media is not going to get anywhere near what Twitter used to be. Not that they want it to anyway. All those people that said they were going to leave Twitter for Gitter or Gab or whatever other apps, Parlor, they're all still on Twitter. That's where all the money and fame and glory is. They tell you with their feet what they really believe. Or in this case, their social media accounts. More Hurtel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. One of our favorites. Haven't talked to him this year because he was our New Year's guest on our Blowout Spectacular where he was the whole episode oh, because right. he's, yeah. just, he's just that important. Todd Kelly, longtime long-form journalist, writer, producer of a great show out in the Portland area that is now up and running. You need to go find it, Seven Deadly Sins, and Ordinary Times OG in good standing. Sir, how are you today? I'm excellent, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm thrilled to talk to you. First thing I just want to ask you, because I always appreciate your big-picture perspective on things. You've been a writer, you're a journalist. You're, I kind of tell people you're an observer of humanity at this kind of stage of your game. <laughs> Um, and I mean that as a compliment um, no,
0: that works. Yeah. The,
1: the events of the last few days and everybody's talking about, you know, this changes the world order and this is a momentous moment in history and this will set up the next generation. I think all of that's true to various degrees, but we don't know what degree, how has it hit you? Because, you know, we have a war of aggression. We have a massive shooting war. We have armies in the hundreds of thousands moving, this is stuff most of us have not seen in our lifetime. How has these events kind of hit you? You
0: know, at the sort of at the risk of saying something I shouldn't, I am not a foreign policy expert. Like I know almost nothing. Um, and so if I'm being honest, most of how it hits me is what I'm seeing domestically um, in terms of what is going to happen internationally. I will tell you, I have no idea. Um and I feel confident that nobody else really does either. Um, and so I think what I have been more interested in watching is um, how it's all gone down here in the United States. I I think for the first time since maybe like twenty sixteen, I am having that feeling of domestically. Well, I do not know what is going to happen next. Um, I certainly did not predict uh the GOP and at least most conservatives turning on a dime on on Russia and Putin and really Trump at least with this one thing and I did I didn't foresee it it surprised me um and I don't know if it will last but as I say for the first time in 2016 I don't know what's next for us domestically and I I can't even hazard a guess
1: is it interesting that I, I think this is a good litmus test, though, of we have something so serious that it's just burning through a lot of the nonsense. And you're right. finding out really, really quick um, the people who can dial it down when they want to. You're finding the people who um, I know the terms overused, but the, the people that it's just a business model or it's just the grifting. And I know we overuse that, but right. it's still a good term. And maybe some of them just assumed we were talking a Some of them just assumed, well, everybody else in the world's grifting because I'm grifting. And that's all of a sudden him like, oh, no, these bad people are serious about this stuff. Yeah. I, I think some of this is actually starting to burn through. And, and some folks that have kind of been on the wrong side of things, maybe this is a moment of clarity of like, OK, at least on this one thing, maybe I need to take a step back and reevaluate a little bit.
0: Well, that, and that's the hope, isn't it? Um... I think we've all those of us who are online, like, I think we've seen a bunch of this where um, when things were first happening uh, in Ukraine um, and everybody started being surprised by how well they were holding up, you still saw people who were trying to find a way to work pronouns into that narrative, um, who look, you know, obviously ridiculous. Um, and I think so. I think there are two ways that this could possibly go. And one is what you're saying that people are sort of being reminded of what their deep values are, what their core principles are, and they're getting back to them. And with any luck at all, they, they'll they stay there and we'll, we'll go back to having sort of that we disagree, but everybody's sort of grounded in principle. Um, I think the other possibility, which I think is just as likely, unfortunately, is that it's more a reflection of a complete lack of foundational principles, that everybody switched sides on the Ukraine super fast as the wind was blowing, and then potentially they'll drift back to where they were as soon as this is over. Like maybe the what I hope it's not like to give like the best analogy I can give is I hope it doesn't end up being like January six uh, of twenty twenty one where you remember there was that period of about a month where everybody on both sides sort of this is bad this is wrong this is not who we are but that didn't last and I'm hoping that this with the Ukraine lasts I. I don't remember seeing this much positive energy about democracy and the forces of good and standing up to evil uh, as I've seen this week. I don't know how many years. Is that... I, the- I, I, I hate to... Like, and, yeah. and I don't even know that it's going to go well for the people in Ukraine over time. And so I feel bad saying that, like, I find something hopeful about this. But I do.
1: Yeah, I find it hopeful too because it's an indictment on us. We were—I was talking about it this way. This—this this is part of the American privilege—is that we get to pick and choose our problems. But it really does, and it's an indictment to us. But it's just the truth. When we see evil, we do tend, as a nation, to rise to it historically. And there was a lot. We—we we just spent a couple of years debating of, well, could we rise up to a World War II moment? Could we? Are we still that kind right. of a country? I'm going to be optimistic here. I think we have an answer to that, that by far the vast majority of at least Americans and even the world and Europe, they've got an evil they're facing now and almost all of them. And some of them, it took them a day or two. They're responding to it and recognize it. And I think this is a big positive to a question that we in the commentariat have been kicking around for a couple of years. Yes. The answer is yes, we can stand up to an evil.
0: Yeah. Um, And like I say, we, it may not last, uh, but, you know, for the moment, I think that I, I just want to live. I just want to live in this moment where it feels like everybody except for one country is kind of standing up and doing the right thing, or at least, you know, not standing up and doing the wrong thing. Um, it, it is greatly heartening to me.
1: Talking about... Todd Kelly, I almost said R Todd Kelly because that's his Twitter handle, but you need to be following him because he has great wisdom for all of us. Um, something in your largesse as a, as a long-time journalist, though, I, I think this also cut into how we consume media in America because all of a sudden, the commentary and the panel shows just don't seem quite as important, and I know, look, I'm already one of those people, I get a lot of overseas news anyway because I just can't right. stand network news in America i've i've talked to a lot of people and i've seen a lot of people that i don't have contact with they're all saying the same thing is like hey where do i get a good news feed where do i get good information this has definitely been a technology event it's been a world event because it's being live streamed from the people involved in it is this going to be a clarifying moment in american media where we start going okay the old method of covering these live events is different because everybody's a journalist now and everybody can go get their media. Do you think the, the national media and the network media has a moment of, wow, we're kind of getting bypassed on one of the biggest stories in decades?
0: No, I wish. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I wish that were the case, but I think we're going to continue to see the same pattern that we have, um, where the vast majority of, uh, what refers to itself as the news media is in fact, simply an entertainment vehicle that's designed to make money. Um, And a very small uh, subset of the news media is actually journalists and investigative journalists uh, doing day-to-day leg and grunt work. And I I don't see anything that's going to change that because, you know, Basically, because that's the way that capitalism works Um, and that it is very expensive comparatively to go out and produce real journalism. And it doesn't sell as well as the cheap stuff, you know, where you have a couple of talking heads on and yell at one another like that costs nothing to produce other than, you know, the salary of your host. And so I think that is going to be the dominant news media for a very long time.
1: Yeah, the uh, we joke about it, but you have the opening segment and then you have the guests to talk about the opening segment, and then you have the panel discussion to talk about the guests talking about the opening segment. And there's your first 30 minutes of every news program right there.
0: Yeah, and I and I think what we don't like, I don't think this gets pointed out as much. I know that we I think we've talked about this before, but um most of the people who are on the panel are there to sort of draw eyeballs almost nobody is an expert on what they've all gathered to talk about. Um, almost nobody has any kind of special insight, um, but that's not, but people don't, you know, it's not something I don't, I think that people come to with the expectation that they are going to get a deeper understanding. I think that they come either to be entertained or to have a particular Uh, idea that they would like to have reinforced, actively reinforced.
1: Yeah, it turns into a funnel really quick. It it was one thing we've tried to do, and and not just our little program, we do it at Ordinary Times, too. It's like, you know, what a concept. If you have a science question, go ask the science expert. If you got a cybersecurity question, and and the panels, and I'm not knocking them, I'm just picking them, but the network news programs, like a CNN, it's the same seven or eight people on every panel for every subject, no matter what it is. And all due respect to them, I'm sure they're fine people with fine insights. But when you have the same, you know how this works, you produce shows when you have the same eight people in the same green room over and over and over again, there's going to start being some (laughs) there's going to start being some groupthink in there somewhere just because human nature is undefeated, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's that classic moment from a few years ago where Anderson Cooper, who I genuinely like, like. He seems a really likable guy, but there was that moment where, and you probably remember this, where he was interviewing Jeffrey Lord about something, um, who is a regular guest and a friend of Donald Trump's, and at one point, sort of, Cooper sort of breaks down and says, "You know, well, of course you're saying that. Like you're, like you're just a shill. You just repeat whatever Trump says. You, you, and the question that I." understand why he was not asking himself was like well why do you have him on every other day like if he has nothing to contribute why is he a regular
1: guest of yours i know because pro wrestling you got to have a heel to have a good guy you gotta have yeah. a bad guy to argue with so that's the thing. yeah uh we're talking to todd kelly a good friend of ours we get him every so often love having him on the program we're going to continue to talk to him more Little culture, little media talking about Ukraine and the greater effects domestically, as he calls it here on America. More with Todd Kelly right after this on Hurtell. Hi, welcome back to Hurtell. Talking to our buddy Todd Kelly, getting a little bit wider perspective on stuff. All right, I have my own opinion on the State of the Union. I think these are just um, kind of dog and pony show things. Have have we kind of kept some traditions in our politics that just don't fit anymore? I know you get a, you know, it's going to get a 20 rating or whatever on TV. Are there certain traditions like this that have just kind of outlasted their prime and we just kind of keep doing them out of habit and never stop to go. What are we actually accomplishing here?
0: (laughs) Yeah. um, And you will know this more than I do because you haven't, you have the legal background, but is the State of the Union that's constitutionally required? Is it not?
1: Yes, and it was a report until the uh, I right. forget which president started. But yeah, you could write a letter and do this, and you'd be gone. Yeah. It's just Yeah, it's just a report to Congress from the executive.
0: Yeah, um, I, I guess I don't understand the point of it, um, or at least I don't understand the point of it except with certain presidents. Uh, I think that there are certain presidents who are particularly good. Orators who have very specific messages that they want to get out, not to Congress, but to the American people. Um, And they're good at it. I thought Reagan was good at it. I thought Obama was good at it. I thought the elder Bush was really good at it when they needed to. Um, But then there's, but does it need to be the State of the Union? for them to do that i don't know that it does and i and i I have to be honest with you um i don't think i've watched the state of the union address in close to 10 years
1: yeah and i teed it up to get to this question for you though is i think the thing that's changed the most about the state of the union is we see the president every day We see the president at the top of every news hour. The nationalization of the media, which is something you can speak to because you've watched it happen and you've talked about it at length and you've wrote about it a lot over the years. The national nationalization of the media is always going to gravitate towards presidential politics because that's the national symbol for everybody. That's the one thing everybody's got the same president. Right. We all have different congressmen and senators. We all got one president. I think the media environment and the social media environment, we we have the president in front of us 24 seven now. I think it's just kind of changed how we see the state of the union. So now the pageantry of it and the pomp and the circumstance and the, the sit down and stand up, fight, 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 choreographed clapping for the laugh lines and all that sort of, I think it just lands really weird for an American people who sees the president all the time now.
0: Yeah. And I think that it creates, uh, I think it further creates a sense of cynicism among sort of the voters because, um, I mean, we all know it doesn't matter how good or bad everything is going at the moment. We all know that whoever's president is going to get up and say everything is fantastic. And again, we don't like things could be going fantastic. And we know that immediately the other side is just going to start explaining how terrible everything is. But it, it doesn't seem like... Nothing about the State of the Union seems genuine or honest, except as I said, in those moments where I think somebody is really trying to has a very specific message that they are trying to get out and use that. Um, I think it is largely not taken seriously by voters, Talking. and that's not good.
1: No, it's not good, and cynicism is bad. And, and yeah. c- but cynicism is a two way street. It's it's the government's fault, and it's partially our fault too. Talking to Todd Kelly about these things. All right, it's an election year. Um, I, I, I wonder though. We talk about how partisan everything is, how divided everything is. We know cyclically what should happen this year. You know the Democrats are probably in for a rough year, just historically. That's just kind of how these things go. But I, I really wonder how much do you think our elections are really a reflection of our people right now, and how much of them are just turning into cyclical things. And I know that's a little bit of a deeper question, but. We get into this nonsense about every election being, you know, I'm on my ninth most valuable election of my lifetime. I think I don't know what one you're on because I don't want to call you older, um, but we I just
0: bury it much older. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But we just keep talking about this over and over again. And it's like, there's so much gridlock right now. A lot of this is just kind of habits and cycles and stuff like that, more so than actual trends. And then we try to read trends into them. Does it feel like that to you sometimes?
0: Yeah. And I think, I think I would go a step further than what you're saying. I don't even see it as gridlock anymore. Um, I think that I sort of now view people who run for office as doing it mostly for reasons of celebrity. Um, Like, If if you were to make a list of the top, I don't know, the top 20 legislators that you can name off of your head because you see them on the news and everything like constantly. And there are people, people are always talking about, I would ask you to go back and see how many pieces of legislation, any of them, serious legislation, not even passed. how many have they introduced over the past 10 years? If you like weed out symbolic stuff that they are like, how, how much actual, Governance is being done, and I don't know that there's a
1: lot. No, and we know that because if legislation goes anywhere, meaning, let me rephrase that, meaningful legislation, it's in an omnibus bill with a whole bunch of other stuff. It's slid into a financial crunch where they just have to pass it. They'll stick it in the back of the DOD funding, something that has to be passed so you can scream that you don't love America if you don't vote for this post office over yonder somewhere, that sort of thing. Yeah.
0: Marjorie Taylor Greene is like a great example. I mean, she's been stripped of committees. She has no legislative power whatsoever. Um, And yet you can't deny that because of the way everything's set up now, she really is one of the most powerful voices in Congress right now.
1: Yeah. You bring her up. Certainly
0: far more powerful than people who like go to work every day and write bills and try to get compromised who you never hear about
1: is is media power power now we used to talk yes. about twitter ain't real life but you know we looked at what used to be power in congress where you had an lbj who would literally just stand and lean over people until they did their legislation the way he wanted them to right. um, and i've always told people you think trump was profane you should read up on lbj sometime Uh, Trump's a piker in comparison yeah but that used to be the power like the back rooms the smoke filled rooms cut and deal Mm -hmm. is the power now really the social media influencers that just happen to hold office on top of it is that really power now
0: I think it's a it is a hard question for me to answer because I think the question that I keep coming with when I try to answer that is what is power the GOP, from one point of view, somewhere along the way after 2012, seemed to amass a huge amount of power nationally um, in terms of being elected to office. But how much of what, how much of what the GOP traditionally ran on and they wanted to do um, and laws they wanted to pass, did they ever get done? Uh, I, I. I'm having a hard time thinking of any. And so so if you're winning elections, do you have power if you're not taking the time to do anything with it? And I don't know the answer to that question.
1: Yeah. Well, none of the rest of the nation does either, including me. So I think that's something we need to wrestle with. You brought it up. So I'm going to go there on Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, We know what she did. Uh, CPAC was in Florida. That means uh, Fuentes and his knuckle-dragging morons had their their hate fest in conjunction with CPAC because they follow around all the big conferences and have an adjacent. We know she attended. She took picture, multiple pictures with them all together. Uh, Representative Gossard out in Arizona has also spoken to this group. This is a straight-up hate group. Um, they're Holocaust deniers. They're, I hate using this term because I think we we overuse it in the broad spectrum of prejudices, which is, ignorance and fixable and this is an evil wicked thing but they are racist they're they're not really hiding it yeah um what do we do here because i i get annoyed i put it out on twitter i'm like she needs to be expelled from congress congress has a mechanism two-thirds vote and they're expelled that's a very high bar and i just get person after person after person like no 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 that that supports the will of the voters that's i'm like you don't want the precedent they could throw you out for saying something i'm like no, no no it's two-thirds man do you know what it takes right. to get two thirds? You can't get two thirds on the naming of a post office nowadays. Right. Um, I'm just shocked. I guess I shouldn't be as hard and as cynical as I get accused of being. There's validity to the accusation. How in the world is this person in Congress? How, how is Gossard, who's even who may literally be losing his mind if you go listen to some of the clips of what he's saying, how are these people in power and Congress hasn't ejected them? I know the answer is partisan politics. Is is it the the wider country just doesn't really realize who these people are? What is it? Because it just befuddles me that these these unworthy people hold office.
0: So yeah, one of two different possibilities, and one possibility is that people simply aren't paying attention, um, and they don't know who these are, and they're not really interested in learning. I think the other possibility that I don't think that we should dismiss out of hand is that. Voters know exactly who Marjorie Taylor Greene and these people are and vote for her because of that.
1: Is it the thing where it's um, they get to say the things out loud we don't want to say? Because I think there's quite a bit of that on social media. I know a lot of people like the couch terms, especially when it comes to racial stuff, comes to anti-Semitic stuff. Is there just an element of that where they may not even be completely true believers in the in the hatred part of it. They just like people who get to say things they're forbidden from saying.
0: I think that there's some of that. I also, I don't think you should ever discount on any side of the political fence, um, the power of uh, attempting to build coalitions against a capital O other. Um, and sometimes that other are immigrants or globalists, or who knows, um, or people who put pronouns on their Twitter bios. I've, let's put it this way. Back when I used to write for Ordinary Times, one of the things that I used to write about a lot was people in the GOP needed to stop saying certain things. Because if they didn't, their voters were going to vote them out of office. Um, and I firmly believe that, but what I have seen over the past 10 years since then is that the more things like that certain politicians say, the more votes that they get. And I, there are places I don't want to go with that knowledge because I don't want to reach the conclusions that I might get, but I can't deny that I've seen that.
1: Yeah. And human nature is undefeated. And one of, I think one of the big problems we have culturally is we just don't want to talk about human nature first and then try to solve problems. Second, Right. that's a deeper conversation for another day. Uh, Todd Kelly. I always appreciate your insights, sir. You've been a wonderful friend and mentor to me and I appreciate you greatly. And I will thank you publicly every chance I get, let folks know where your social media is so they can get more of your great wisdom and your occasional writing at ordinary-times.com, which we always clear the deck for you.
0: Um, you can follow me on Twitter at r todd kelly at r todd kelly and and that is where I'll always announce new pieces dropping. So,
1: yep, and check out his shows if you're ever up in the Portland area. Yeah. Uh, they're getting they're back up and running. Seven Deadly Sins, easy to find. They got a couple different. Tell folks real quick what it is because you've actually got a couple varieties of them now, don't you?
0: Yeah, we have a uh, most of them are based on personal narrative. Uh, So we have a main stage show where we have people tell stories that have happened to them in their real life. And they're fascinating. Um, We've had uh, the story of the woman whose village was bombed when she was growing up in Iran and later was set up on a blind date with an older man who she figured out during the date was one of the people who'd bombed the village. Um, A wonderful gentleman whose daughter had uh, been killed at Sandy Hook and went through a period of time where he couldn't see color and sort of a, an act of kindness one day sort of brought his sight back. So really compelling stuff. And we hire musicians to score music to it, but we have a lot of other different kinds. We have a truths and a lie show where seven people tell like the most outrageous thing they've ever done, like a bar story on one of them's line. And if whoever in the audience can guess, who it is wins a prize
1: good stuff yeah good people seem to like it and good human entertainment which we need more of that that culture thing not the war stuff we talk about online the actual culture thing is in you know people understanding each other good stuff yeah todd kelly appreciate your time sir really appreciate you always good talking
0: all right thank you
1: andrew always a pleasure to be here we'll have you back soon sir thank you tom Uh, welcome back to Hertel. I want to touch in on a story. Uh, I got a little fired up over the burn pit stuff from the State of the Union, number one, because I got bigfooted by all the partisan politic nonsense and nobody actually talked about the issue because we were too busy talking about Nancy Pelosi's reaction and the president talking about his son and the idiot congresswoman standing up and deciding to make a show out of it at that particular moment. I'm still upset at her. We'll talk about that some other time. But On Thursday, the House did pass some burn pit legislation. It's important to go back and note this. Now, um, what they passed is not going to be the final revision of this bill. The Senate has already passed a version of the burn pit bill. Uh, This is just my opinion now. I'm going to tell you what my opinion on. I think the House bill was too broad, was too expensive and didn't actually focus in enough. I didn't think the Senate bill went far enough. The Senate bill, all it did was basically extend the period of time people, veterans could apply for benefits from five years after they uh, left the service to 10 years. That's still too narrow a window because a lot of these veterans, we're seeing with the Vietnam veterans now, they don't file until they get into their advanced age or they get to their retirement ages. They need to get rid of that. They're going to put these two bills together in a reconciliation process. I know we talk about that with the budgeting stuff, but this is going to get reconciled as well. I'm hopeful that they will take the best of both bills and make a good bill here. Uh, They need to open up the window uh, to a longer frame, 20 or 30 years, or really in perpetuity that these veterans should be able to apply for these benefits. I think the price tag on the House bill was too high. I don't think it was so high that you couldn't vote on it because, let's be honest, it's pretty hypocritical for them to complain about spending money on veterans when we spend money on over everything under the sun. But nonetheless, uh, the bill did pass the House on Thursday. I do appreciate the president bringing it up in the State of the Union, even though it got washed out of other issues. And we will watch closely to see what the final version of this important legislation is for our veterans. Keep an eye on that. Uh, Make sure you lobby your congressmen and senators about that. If you care about veteran issues, don't just tweet you love veterans. Get on your social media, get on the phone, contact people, do something about it. If you really care. More heard tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tale. We always love to end on a lighter note or a good note. This is a great, great story out of The Guardian in London. Um, Alyssa Timonishka, I'm going to mispronounce all these names. I'll just warn you up front, was brought up on a, quote, beautiful diet of Ukrainian and Russian dishes growing up. She remembers her great grandmother, a Ukrainian Holocaust survivor who immigrated to Siberia following the Second World War, pounding lard and frying vegetables to make a hearty beetroot borscht. Uh, that's a Ukrainian soup. Uh, now the Russian chef has joined forces with her Ukrainian best friend, Olya Hercules, in a show of unity in the face of war. The London-based pair, both 37, are the forces behind Cook for Ukraine, an initiative that uses food to raise awareness about the conflict and funds to support the humanitarian effort. Modeled on Cook for Syria, the charity culinary movement that went global in 2016, the campaign encourages everyone to celebrate Ukrainian and Eastern European culture by cooking traditional meals and possibly donating to a Just Giving page that's a kind of an English-UK version of GoFundMe. Uh, The hope is that over cabbage pie, varicant dumplings, again, I'm apologizing for the pronunciation here, my Slavic is not good, or Ukrainian shala bread, uh, dinners will be more likely to discuss the latest developments. Um, They may be inspired in turn to donate to the relief effort. Uh, There's items in this. You can go to theguardian.com. There's all the links in here. But down at the bottom, a wonderful little quote here said, quote, when you can put a relatable message forward with human faces and things people can physically relate to like food, we're really hoping the message will get a lot more long lived and people will sustain their interest. It's an aim to get really close to people's hearts and stomachs. We fully understand that. That's why we do the Twitter Supper Club. I do food. Everybody got to eat. Universal brings people together, including a Russian and Ukrainian friend's who don't want the war to tear apart their people. That'll do it on Tell Wherever you're watching and or listening, whether it's watching on the YouTube channel or listening on any of the podcasting platforms, we sure do appreciate you. Uh, Can't do the show without you because if you're not listening, we ain't got nobody to talk to. And we love the feedback. Been getting lots of it. Um, We went past 10,000 downloads on the podcast, the YouTube page is over 3,000 views. We're over 100 subscribers on the YouTube. Thank you so very much. Please make sure you're subscribing if you're listening. However you want it, you can subscribe more than one place. That'd be all right, too. And if you really want to do us a favor, use a couple extra free clicks and share us on your social media. We don't pay for advertising here. It's all word of mouth. And what we do on social media, you folks are finding it. We're going to keep working really hard. We have great guests lined up. We're going to continue to turn down the noise of the news cycle, talk to knowledgeable people, get to the information we need, because what it's really about is being able to discern our times and what's going on around us and making good decisions about it. We're going to be one of the most documented generations in history. What are they going to tell us? What are they going to say about us in the history books of how we met these crises? Let's keep the larger perspective and work on it together. That's what we're going to keep doing right here on Herd Tell. So until we do it again tomorrow, hope you all have a great Monday. See you tomorrow from our hotel, wherever you and yours are. We hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to y'all tomorrow. All the music on Hotel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.
0: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger.